All right, let's open our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 9. We're going to continue our series through the book of Jeremiah. We find ourselves in chapter 9 looking at verses 2 through 26. The topic we're going to find there is that Jeremiah lamented that the disobedience of Judah had led them on a course that would force God to turn their beautiful land into a desolate wilderness. The title of our message this morning, The Call of the Wilderness. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word, I pray that with humility we would listen to the still, small voice of your spirit and that you would be speaking directly to us in love, through grace, with mercy. We thank you in Jesus' name and all who agreed said amen. To illustrate biblical Christianity, we often liken our lives on earth as believers in Jesus Christ to wandering in a wilderness. One author put it somewhat poetically saying this, to every child of God, this world with all its conceived pleasures is nothing but a wilderness, far from his father's house, far from that goodly land which he so ardently longs to see and to possess. This is the view which every saint takes of earth, and it is a just one. What the wilderness was to the children of Israel in their journey to the promised land, this decaying scene is to the believer in his progress heavenward. It is not his rest. It is not his home. On the contrary, it is a wilderness world of trouble from which he is coming up out of and traveling to the mansions above. Without in any way detracting from that great illustration, I must say there is another way wilderness can describe our lives. It's one that is less poetic, slightly more tragic. It is this. If we are not careful, we can turn our lives into a spiritual wilderness. In our text, Jeremiah mentions the world wilderness no less than three times. As we will see, the disobedience of the people of God brings judgment upon them that turns their land into a physical wilderness, and it shows them that their sin had already turned their lives into a spiritual wilderness. Our reading of this text prompts us to ask of ourselves two questions. Number one, are you turning your life into a spiritual wilderness, or number two, are you turning your life over to spiritual wonderment? First of all, in verses 2 through 22, are you turning your life into a spiritual wilderness? One interesting feature of these verses is that Jeremiah speaks in three of them, and each time he does, in verses 2, 10, and 12, he mentions this word wilderness. Now, at the time Jeremiah spoke, the Jews were still dwelling in relative comfort in and around Jerusalem. He was therefore predicting a future time when God's judgment would turn their land literally into a wilderness. Meanwhile, as you read through the chapter, you see that their lives were already desolate spiritual wildernesses. No believer wants their life to turn into a spiritual wilderness. None of you, none of us got up this morning and said, I think I will jettison walking with the Lord and turn my life into a barren, desolate, spiritual wilderness where I am parched and unsatisfied and I have ruined everything and everybody around me. Nobody gets up and does that. However, many of us have experienced a time in our lives or have seen others experience a time in their lives where they did wake up one morning and that was the case. So how did they get there? 
That's one of the things that we want to learn about from looking at the disobedience of the people of Judah. And so we begin in verse two. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go far from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Lodging places, or some of your Bibles will translate it in. In those days, they weren't comfortable They were actually quite dangerous. They were just places along uh, roads. Maybe there was a structure, maybe there wasn't. Usually, if there was, it was some kind of a wall with an open courtyard, and people would just hang out there in little stalls or little areas, and you you had no idea who was going to be there. Uh, Whether they were friendly or enemies, robbers or whatever. And so, for somebody who lived in Jerusalem, the, the crown jewel of Judah, God's city, to say, I would rather permanently dwell as a traveler along the dangerous roads where robbers and thieves dwell at night in these temporary lodging places. That's quite a statement, quite a commentary on the sad state of life in Jerusalem. Jeremiah said, they're all adulterers. Now, either everyone was literally committing adultery, whether it was spiritual or physical, or everyone had changed their mind about what constituted it and they were okay with it. In other words, the entire society had made a a shift in their thinking uh, away from the truth of the word of God. Just because other believers are doing certain things or because they think certain ways doesn't mean it's okay for me. Just because certain standards have grown lax in society doesn't mean our standards should grow lax as Christians. As I've said many times before, we don't want to just be a little bit better than people in the world. We want to be separated and holy. Our standards should never really change. As society changes, there are certain standards that should never really change. And yet, it's difficult, it's a warfare, there's a struggle as a Christian because society is always seeking to tear you down. Now, one thing I do see happening, it's kind of a sad commentary, is that in the Christian realm today, I'm not talking about our church, but just in the general Christian realm, I see a lot of believers who are so into what they call their liberties, those areas of life that are neither black or white, They're not necessarily sinful. They could be sinful to some people, but it's an area of liberty. And and we don't want to take anybody's liberty away from them, but I see them now flaunting that liberty. They wear it on their sleeve, as it were. They promote it. And if anybody challenges them and says, oh, you might be stumbling somebody else, they get very offended about that. Now, Paul the Apostle, he was in defense of liberty. He said, you you know, if the Bible doesn't say it's sinful, have it to yourself and God. Do it. He doesn't want to limit your uh, Christian walk in that way. But Paul the Apostle also said, if I'm doing something that would stumble my brother or sister, I'll never do it again. I'll just give it up just like that. And so we're not even asking people to give things up anymore. We're just asking them to not flaunt them, to not put them on Facebook I'm on Facebook, and I'm amazed at what's on Facebook. How many, recently it seems like a rash of people who I think are normal that I have to hide their posts. 
It's crazy. What are you, th- and it's not that people have gotten hijacked. I know people get hijacked and, you know, and hacked and all of that. But some people, they're just out there saying, hey, this is my liberty. This is what I do. I know a few years ago this was a questionable behavior, but now it's me. And so I say just be careful. Keep doing it if you feel like it gets you closer to the Lord. But I'll tell you right now, if your attitude is to flaunt it and not care about uh, whether it stumbles a believer, it's not a liberty to you. It's something else that's gonna lead you into a wilderness of sin. Verse three, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They're not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and try them, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out, it speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this. Now, reviewing those verses, God speaks of their lies three times. He speaks of deceit four times. Why was it so easy for them to lie and deceive? Well, part of the answer can be found in the phrase in verse three, they are not valiant for the truth on earth. And so God had given them truth through his word. He had commanded them. And they were not valiant for it. They didn't defend it. They didn't draw their sword and say, this is the truth of God and we won't waver from it. And therefore, they began to lie about their behaviors. They began to deceive themselves and to deceive others. Because if you're not gonna stand for the truth as God has revealed it, you have to fall for a lie. To be valiant for the truth is to agree with God's word. His truth as you walk with him on the earth You agree with it and obey him. And you agree with it when you disobey him by confessing and repenting and coming back to obedience. You you see your sin, you say, yes, that is sin. I fell into it, I've been doing it, but I recognize it for what it is. I don't wanna have anything to do with it anymore. I wanna get right back on track with the Lord. Now, it used to be when a believer sinned, they would confess it and they would repent from it. They would get back on track in their walk with the Lord. They were valiant for the truth on earth. More and more today, I'm seeing professing Christians fall into sin and then choose to continue in it on some level. And they'll even say, I know this is sin, but they like to use those air quotes, you know, air quotes. I know it's sin, but what do you want me to do? I have to continue in it on some level for whatever reason. For example, Husband has problems with pornography, gets caught or he admits it, but then he refuses to give his wife access to his online activities. He's not being valiant for the truth. 10 times out of 10, he's deceiving himself and lying to her. I've seen this, sadly. It's like, well, yeah, that was sin. I'm not doing that anymore, but I have a right to privacy. I mean, I, you know, I have personal rights. This is America. This is my online activity. I'm not doing anything. I was, but I'm not, and, but I don't want anybody to check up on me. Well, 10 times out of 10, that's a lie. 
And what he's doing is deceiving himself. He's saying, I don't intend to do this, but I, I want to have the opportunity to do it should it arise. Your life is a wilderness. It's going to be a desolate wilderness. I don't know how many marriages I've seen destroyed in just that way. It's very, very sad. Verse 10, I will take up a weeping and a wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that no one can pass through, nor can man hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. Now, this is Jeremiah speaking, and he seems to be saying, okay, Lord, I will lament because you're going to destroy the area surrounding Jerusalem. You're going to burn it, turn it into a desolate wasteland, and we'll be safe in Jerusalem. We'll look out on that, and it'll be sufficient judgment. But in verse 11, the Lord says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Sadly, God would not spare his city or his temple. The sin, the rebellion, the disobedience of his people would make their land and Jerusalem a wilderness. On a very small scale, those of you who are parents and you actually discipline your children, you, there are times, aren't there, when you know that you have to discipline your child. You have to follow through. Whatever that means to you, whether it's a spanking or a timeout or whatever it is, you just know, you know, this is, this is that moment when I, I have to do something about this because this is a spiritual situation. And uh, some, sometimes we follow through and then there are times that we don't. God always follows through because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He loves you too much to not discipline. And so he follows through and he tells Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, it's not enough to give Judah a time out. They're way past time out. They need a panking. And they're gonna get it at the hands of the Babylonian army. Verse 12, who is the wise man who may understand this? Who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? This reminds me a great deal of the confusion Habakkuk, a contemporary of Jeremiah's, expresses in his book, over God's use of the Babylonians to discipline his people. Their quick summary of Habakkuk, he realizes the people were in sin, he's begging God to bring some kind of discipline so that they would no longer be sinners. God says, I have something in mind, but I'm not gonna tell you what it is, even though I trust you and love you because it, you'd have a hard time digesting it. Habakkuk says, I'm a big boy prophet, lay it on me. God says, okay, I'm raising up the Babylonian empire to come and destroy Jerusalem and its temple and carry your people away captive for 70 years. Habakkuk says, yeah, right. You shouldn't have told me that. I'm struggling with that. I know we're bad, but are we that bad? And, and his book goes on until he finally has a breakthrough of faith where at the end of the book, some of the greatest scripture in all the word of God where he says, though everything fail, yet I will trust the Lord. And so this is Jeremiah's moment, one of them, where he's saying, Lord, I hear you, but is that really necessary? And it is. Verse 13, and the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts, and after this, the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send a sword after them, 
until I have consumed them. The Jews were people who were promised physical blessings for obedience. They were warned of physical discipline for disobedience. They entered into those covenants with God willingly. This judgment was no more but no less than they deserved. Now, God's dealings with us here in the church are more on the level of spiritual blessings. Thus, we can continue to prosper physically while deteriorating spiritually. In fact, it's possible to become even more prosperous in some cases when we disobey the Lord. It makes the deterioration of our spiritual life hard to see until we find ourselves parched and hurting in the wilderness of our sin. Do yourself a favor. Don't ever think of your spirituality in terms of anything physical, in terms of your health or your wealth or your prosperity, because that's just not the way God works among his people today. There are incredibly spiritual Christians who are impoverished. There are incredibly spiritual Christians who have the wealth of this world. Uh, and, and so the thing is, that this is one easy way to not deceive yourself. Don't look around and think, well, nothing's happened to me. I'm still relatively healthy. I still am prospering. I have a job. I have a vehicle. You know, things are going pretty well for me. God must be pleased with me. No, you, you can't think like that at all. Neither can you think because an illness comes upon you or you, have, you lose your job or your car explodes. Oh, God must be angry with me. No, that is, that's an Old Testament idea. You need to go to the Word of God and talk to God through the Spirit of God and say, Lord, am I on track with your plan and purpose for my life regardless of how you're blessing me physically or withholding those blessings because my life is all about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And what I've seen happen a lot with Christians is that they kind of step into an area of sin, they, they tow over the line a little bit, and then they go out and they start their car and it doesn't explode like in the movies. And so they think, well, God, uh, you know, God could have easily exploded my car. Uh, they get to their job and they still have it, you know, they, they go to the doctor and they don't get a diagnosis of cancer. And so they think, well, I guess I'm okay. That has nothing to do with anything in terms of your spiritual walk with the Lord. Get that out of your head. There's nothing stupider than the health and wealth gospel. It's not a gospel. It's not a doctrine. It's insanity. It's stupidity. I won't stand for it. I'd like to be healthy and wealthy, but it doesn't matter. Now, this next section is especially graphic. It's even a little morbid. Verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. There's nothing weirder than funeral customs. And they vary, of course, from culture to culture, but they're, they're just strange, if you ask me. 
In Judah, it was customary to hire women to mourn at funerals. Apparently, there were the mourning women and then there were the wailing women. And so you would hire these mourning women and, you know, they would mourn, whatever that means to you, and then there would be the wailers. And in their culture, the way you expressed your love for the deceased was the amount of mourning and wailing women that you hired to be at the funeral. And they could care less about what was going on. They were professional wailers. Uh, you know, and this is why the one time when Jesus healed uh, an individual at his funeral, they all immediately quit crying and said, hey, you're an idiot, uh, because they were just professional mourners. Uh, I think that's kind of weird, but it's no weirder than some of the customs we have. Without stepping on anybody's toes, I think one custom I've seen talking to people over the years, you know, who've gone to funeral homes and dealt with morticians, is the idea that the expense of the casket has something to do with the, the nature of your love for the deceased. I don't know how many funerals I've done over the years, but a lot of them, people come up and they say, wow, look at this casket. Because you can spend, you know, you can spend 10, 20, $30,000 on a casket. And, and, and if your goal is to have a wow casket so that people think you must have really loved that individual to spend $30,000 on a casket. No, you just weren't thinking when you were making this negotiation. Uh, you know, there's a lot of nice-looking caskets in the $1,000 range. Uh, you know, that kind of... And you might think I'm being irreverent. Maybe I am, but what a weird custom. Do you think a Christian... Let me just get off on this for a minute. I have extra time this morning because I had a baby dedication. You can't leave at 1130. So, <laughs> do you think there's a sincere Christian who dies, who, if you could talk to them on the other side, would say please give me a $50,000 casket and wouldn't say, take that money and give it to Gospel for Asia or dedicate it to some gospel cause, further the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that you have to cheap out. Nothing bothers me more, shifting gears now to weddings, than cheap out weddings. Christians are the worst cheap out wedding people in the world. Now, if you can't afford a wedding, that's fine. Nobody says you have to have the most expensive wedding in the world, but I know too many people who have lots of money who cheap out weddings. They look in their backyard and no matter what's, oh, there's a swimming pool there, we can put a bridge there and you get married right there. That'll be a beautiful backyard wedding. No, it won't, it'll be ridiculous. And so there's a balance. You don't wanna cheap out, but you don't have to spend, you know, you don't want anybody to say, wow, that's the greatest coffin I've ever seen. Watch, watch this, I got a remote control. <laughs> You understand it's going in the ground, right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the indication in these verses that the death toll in Judah was going to be so great, they should gather all the mourning women, all the wailing women, teach their daughters to mourn and wail, and then they still wouldn't have enough mourners, so they'd have to teach everyone their neighbor. In other words, you're either going to be mourning a death or you're going to be dead. There's only two categories of people. Uh, and it was going to be terrible. He says, death is coming in through the window, as personifying death, as if there's no place to hide, and those who run are gonna fall in the field, and they're gonna lay there like gleanings that don't get harvested. God, when he judges his people, he's real serious about it. But it's gonna take him 40 years of pleading with them to get to that point, 40 years of promising them that if they don't repent, he has to judge them, but if they will repent, he won't. 
When I turn my life into a spiritual wilderness, all around me, the things that the Lord has made beautiful and those he would have made beautiful in his time, they're all dead. The death toll can be quite significant as families are destroyed, as careers are ruined, as testimonies are tarnished. Be valiant for the truth on the earth. Know what God has said. Agree with it. Then do it, no matter the cost. When you sin, agree with God about it and repent. If you're sinning right now, stop. Turn the other way. The way out of the wilderness you've turned your life into is to return to God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's to love him more than anyone, more than anything else. And when you do, you'll do what is right. Verse 23 through 26, are you turning your life over to spiritual wonderment? The chapter closes with this call for you to live on a spiritual plane, seeking spiritual blessings and expecting spiritual rewards. See if you get excited about what the Lord says in verses 23 and 24. He says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Are you interested in human wisdom, might, and riches? Or to put it another way, do you value what men value, being considered wise and having power and possessions? Or do you get all excited by knowing that God exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth? Or to put it another way, do you value what God values, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness? How many of you remember when we used to sing, thy loving kindness is better than life? You remember that song? I want so bad to sing it. The women have a part, the men have a part. You remember? Thy loving kindness is better than life. That's the whole song. And so the men sing, thy loving kindness is better than life. So thy loving kindness is better than life, is better than life. Okay, so let's do it. Ready? Thy loving kindness is better than life, is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Shall praise thee, thus will I bless thee. I will lift up thy hands unto thy name. Anyway, it goes like that. But uh, thank you, thank you. Just came to me. Or maybe that wasn't a song we used to sing. Maybe it was a spontaneous song that we all just received, like the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. So now we have a fish Jesus, and we have spontaneous singing. This is revival, brothers and sisters. Loving kindness occurs 250 times in the Old Testament, 250 times. 26 times we are told God's loving kindness is forever. Now, loving kindness is an attribute of God which leads him to bestow upon his children his constant blessings, but it's more than a desire to bless us for obedience. A.W. Pink speaks of God's loving kindness as keeping us, as preserving us. He writes, this loving kindness of the Lord is never removed from his children. To our reason, it may appear to be so, yet it never is. Since the believer is in Christ, nothing can separate him from the love of God. God has sworn that if his children keep not his commandments, he will, quote, visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Yet he adds, quote, nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break. 
God's loving kindness draws you to himself and then it is his desire to love you and to shower his love upon you and he keeps you having begun a good work in you until the day of Christ Jesus. Judgment here doesn't mean being judgmental. It's more like God making an assessment. The idea is captured in the words of Hebrews 11 verse six where we read, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so what it's telling us here is that God is always assessing your life, looking to reward you in the future. Righteousness is having a right to stand before God. How can God allow sinners to stand before him? He can declare the believing sinner righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what these verses are saying is that if you are a believer, you stand and you walk before God on your way to heaven, he has promised you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places now as you walk on the earth and he's looking to reward you when he takes you home to heaven to be with him. And so this morning when I got up out of bed, of course, God's watching me all night. But when I got up out of bed, I, am, I was confident that it was God's desire to shower in my life all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is what his heart wants to do today and every day that I walk on the earth. I can interfere with that by moving into the wilderness, by turning my life into a wilderness, but that is the heart of God, that is the desire of God. And then beyond that, he's looking at that day when he will have gathered rewards for the obedient things I did, for the right motives that I had, for the service that I performed, so that he can shower those upon me at his judgment seat. And if you think of God in any other way, then that's not the God of the Bible. Now, he's your father, and he will also discipline you He can't be showering spiritual blessings in heavenly places the way he wants to if you're living in the wilderness and so he'll come after you or at least wait for you. And when you come back, he'll start all over again. And this is the life that you and I want to live. Now the chapter ends, verse 25 and 26, it talks about judgment coming on the circumcised and the uncircumcised. The Jews thought they were safe from judgment because they were physically circumcised, but God has always told them that's just an outward ritual to show that what you need is an inward change of heart, a regeneration of heart. And so God's saying all those that are uncircumcised, whether of heart or body, they're gonna be judged. And he lumps Judah in with these other Gentile nations. It reminds us of a day that's coming when God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the nations as well. We call it the great tribulation in the Bible, that seven-year period of his wrath. And what I would do by application in mentioning that is to say, it's not a good time to be turning your life into a spiritual wilderness. The Lord could come at any minute. And, And you just honestly don't want to be caught out in a spiritual wilderness when the Lord comes back because he loves you so much and you're gonna know that when you see him. You're gonna wanna be investing in spiritual things. So I was thinking this morning, I don't know why, but back in 1980, you could buy Apple stock for $20 a share, I think it was. Don't you wish you had bought two or 300 shares of Apple stock? Because now it's selling for $500 a share. You and I are idiots. (laughs) We just couldn't see what was coming. But as Christians, oh my gosh, You can see what is coming. God says, I'm gonna reward you in heaven. 
And so every day I think, well, what do I want to do today? Same thing I do every day. Do I want to serve the Lord? Do I want to not serve the Lord? Do I want to walk more into a wilderness area? Do I want to leave most of my Christian life over here and have this little area here? When you wake up in heaven, you're going to think, what an idiot. What an idiot. Way better rewards and dividends than Apple stock would have paid me. And so I'm not even as smart about it as I am on the earth. And so just start thinking about how you can please the Lord, how you can serve the Lord, what your life means to the Lord. And it's not that, you know, people say, well, I don't really care about rewards. You know, I'm too big for that. That's not really it. It's not, it's not that you're gonna want to have a sack full of reward. You're gonna go into the interview and then come out with a sleigh full of, yeah, beat you. It's not that in heaven, I'm still gonna have to mow my yard, but you're gonna have a yard service because you outserved me. It's that in that quiet, private, one-on-one moment, I don't know how it's gonna work out with all the billions of people involved, but there's gonna be a moment when just I and Jesus are in, an, in heaven and he's gonna be looking at me And I'm going to realize all the opportunities I missed and all that I could have done when I was dinking around, putting one foot over the line into sin, trying to build something in a wilderness because I was depressed or angry or bitter or something like that. And it's going to break my heart, even though I'm in heaven, because Jesus is just going to be there saying, I loved you so much. All I wanted to do was pour blessing into your life minute after minute after minute after minute. All I want to do is reward you. And Gene, I'm going to reward you because I love you that much, but I'm going to know that he could have rewarded me more. And it's my heart and his heart. The rewards, they don't matter. What matters is that relationship. Do you realize we're in a personal relationship with the living God, Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead? And if you're not living to please him, or if it's somewhere in your heart there isn't that desire to please him, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, redouble your efforts in these last days. Let's pray.